Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come around the Word of God, the Word that feeds us, the Word that nourishes our souls. It also corrects us and gives us guidance and direction. So Lord, we ask that today our ears would be open to what you want to say to us through your Word. You would take me as a mouthpiece, Lord, and that you would speak through me in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Well, we were singing about it earlier um, in that song, Oh, Praise the Name. We, we got to that part where it says, um, he shall return in robes of white and I will rise among the saints. I just love that, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Look, that's got to be the moment of all moments, you know, that moment when we see his face. Absolutely phenomenal. And this is one of my favorite topics because I love to talk about the fact that Jesus gave us a promise that he will come again. And so that's what I want to talk about today, the promise of Christ's return. And I hope you'll buckle in. I've got lots of scriptures for you. I want the the scriptures to speak for themselves in many ways um, because that's where we get our truth from. But the promise of Christ's return, you know, there hasn't been anything in the Bible that God has promised that he hasn't done or won't do. When he gives his word, we can know it's a sure thing. So, um, oh, how did I do that? (laughs) I'm talented. Wow. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Okay, we're going to have a look at the direct quote from Jesus himself. If you have a Bible where the words of Christ are in red, you will see these words in red. So John 14, 1 to 3. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am... There you may be also. Now, um, put your hand up if you have heard this verse before. Just let me see your hands. Have you heard this verse before? Most of you in the room. Okay. Um, In fact, there's been a lot of houses, uh, houses, a lot of songs written about the mansions in heaven and what we're going to see there. But I want to just bring up a different version Uh, This is the English Standard Version, ESV, and it's probably uh, a little more accurately translated instead of mansions. So it says the same, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told, sorry, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. All right, many rooms. 
This is um, an important difference. One thing makes you think of a city, many mansions, doesn't it? But if you say a father's house has many rooms, you think of one dwelling place. Now, where does a family usually dwell? Do they each have their own house? Does the kids have their own house and the dog have its own house? Well, maybe the dog has its own house. Um, <coughs> but a household dwells in a house, one house together. And so this is a beautiful picture, not of us all segregated, but of us as one family in the Father's house. In my house are many rooms. Now, there's a reason Jesus said this. Did you know all of Jesus' disciples were Galileans? They all came from that little town of Galilee and from that region. And so when Jesus said this to them, they would have understood it very differently to us. Here's why. According to Galilean tradition... The bridegroom would go back to the father's house and build a room, an extension on the father's house, to make a place for him and his bride. Once completed, the father would give his son permission to go and get his bride, marry her and bring her to her newly prepared home. This would be accompanied by a seven-day marriage feast or supper with family and friends. So... When Jesus said, I'm going to build a room, an extension on the Father's house, and I'll come back for you, they're straight away thinking wedding ceremony. That's what their tradition was. That was normal. So this was to be expected. The bridegroom always went away and prepared a place for the bride. And the promise was there, I will come back for you. How wonderful. Now, this is a promise. So the scripture says, heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus said, my words will never pass away. So this promise, Jesus cannot break. It is even more certain of being fulfilled than the sun rising tomorrow. That's how sure this is. Even heaven and earth will pass away. But his words will never pass away. So when he says, I will come again and take you to myself, he means it. Now, every generation of believers has looked expectantly for Christ's return for them. But so they should. Because Jesus told us to watch for his appearing. In fact, there is a special reward, a special reward a specific crown mentioned in the scripture for those who love and look for his appearing. So I'm going to show you this uh, in 2 Timothy here. Um, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8. There is a special crown of righteousness given to those who love his appearing. So it doesn't matter what generation you were born in, if you were looking for and watching for the appearing of Jesus, they will receive a special crown, the scripture says. 
You see, every generation should look for his return. But there will be one generation where they will scoff at his return instead. And this will be the last day's generation. Look at this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 4. Peter is saying, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers, okay? Scoffing, saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? Now, look, I can confirm this. Just even in the last five years alone, I have lost count of the amount of people who have said to me, oh, well, every generation thought Jesus was coming in their lifetime. And they say, oh, but everything's still just going on the same. We've always had earthquakes. We've always had all these things. None of it means anything. They scoff. They don't think that we need to be watching. What about you? Do you think it's important to watch for Christ's return? I find it interesting the people who, who have lost interest in looking for the return of Christ. Little do they know that they are actually a p- part of fulfilling this Bible prophecy of the last day's generation. But look, why do they scoff? Why, why should they think that Jesus won't return? Perhaps they've been disappointed in the past. Maybe they've been given information and it hasn't worked out the way they thought. But it could also be that his coming has been delayed. I mean, after all, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. That's a long time, isn't it, for the church to wait for Jesus to fulfill his promise. Jesus addressed this whole issue of whether or not we should still be watching in several of his parables. And we're just going to have a look at some of those together today. I'm going to start in Mark chapter 13, verse 33 to 37. Jesus is saying, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants, to each to his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. There it is again. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and I say to you, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. That's pretty clear, yeah? <laughs> okay, we're all supposed to be watching. Okay, look at what we're supposed to be doing while we're watching. We've been given authority to do his work. We are to do that and to keep a watch. All right. Now, it's kind of like for me when I'm at work and like I finish work at 4.06. I know. Don't worry about the 06. Anyway, it's a long story. Um, I finish at 4.06. Now, at about 3.30, I start 
checking the time more regularly. I'm still working, mind you, and I am still being productive, but I'm also watching because I know that something is coming. Knock off time, <laughs> right? So I'm working, but I'm also watching. And this is what Jesus is asking of us here. He's saying, I am coming back for you, so don't get complacent. Don't just sit down, put your feet up and think, oh, well, nothing's going to happen. Master's not coming home. I'll get to those dishes later. No, you need to be about your father's business, but you need to be watching because I can come at any time. Watch. We're going to have a look at Matthew 24, another parable Jesus told. Matthew 24, 45 to 51. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, I want to go over a few things from this slide, uh, from the, uh, this passage. So firstly, he says, the master made his servant ruler over his household to give them food in due season. I find that interesting. Surely that is an analogy of the church. We have been given the bread of life. And we've been given a special task. Go into all the world and feed the hungry the bread of life. Preach the gospel. We have been commissioned with a very important task. Go into all the world. Take this good news. But look what happens when this servant forgets to watch. He says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Indeed, it has felt like Jesus has been delaying his coming. But here is the little side door where Satan likes to get in and begin to do a work, an evil work. What does he do? He begins to beat his fellow servants. Isn't that interesting? He starts to pick on others who are in the same household as himself. Starts picking on them, finding fault with them. And then he begins to eat and drink with the drunkards. So it's a progression downwards. Instead of behaving like a trusted servant who was entrusted to bring the food to the household, He's now completely forgot his responsibility, what he's supposed to be doing. And instead, 
He's just eating and drinking, getting drunk with the drunkards. He's forgotten a couple of things, who he is, where he is, and who he belongs to. All because in his heart he felt his master was delayed in coming. This is why it's so important that we always watch, that we always have an expectation. He could come today. What if he came today? Oh, may I be found faithful, doing what he asked me to do. May I be found faithful, presenting the words of life to those around me. May I not look at others and pick on them and and begin to become very inward focused. You know, it says that looking for his appearing is like a refining fire for the believer. If you know that he's coming and you think he's coming soon, you will live your life in a holy and godly way because you're expecting him. You don't want to be found with the drunkards. Um, Not about your father's business. One more, Luke chapter 12, 35 to 38. Jesus said, Let your waist be girded. Another version says, be aware of the time. Be about action and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master when he comes will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. This passage tells us something absolutely mind-blowing for me. Okay. It says, for the ones who were watching, when the master comes... There's a reversal. The master then girds himself as a servant, has his servant sit down at the table to eat, and he comes and serves them. Do you know at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we are with Jesus in heaven for the wedding feast, he is going to serve us? That is so humbling to me. I can't even imagine. I just... uh, All I can imagine is me sitting at this beautifully laid table in heaven and Jesus comes to serve me and me jumping up going, no, 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 it's all right, it's all right, really, like, have a seat, Jesus, you're the son of God. (laughs) How about, how about I serve you? I mean, that is going to be so hard, so humbling to allow him to serve me. But yet this is what he chooses to do for those who are watching I get the impression it's really important to him that we're looking for him. You know, when Jeremy proposed to me and he put that ring on my finger and it was sparkles in the light, you know, I would spend a lot of time those first, you know, few months until our wedding just admiring that ring and thinking about what it meant. The day's coming. My wedding day is coming. 
My wedding day is coming. I'm going to marry my beloved. And there is a reminder. You know, the Holy Spirit, it said, is given to us like a wedding ring, like a betrothal ring, as the guarantee of our purchased possession, that he will come for us. The Holy Spirit is like our engagement ring to say, I am coming back for you. And how sad would it be if just because he took a little longer than we expected, we were no longer excited about our wedding day. We were no longer watching and waiting. Watch because he is coming. Now, when we say that, that can mean all sorts of things to believers. You might have all kinds of images in your head when I say Jesus is coming. You might think of him coming on a white horse. You might think of him appearing in clouds. You might think of him coming so shining that nobody can even see him. You might have all kinds of different images in your mind. So I want to just go through a couple of, well, quite a few scriptures really, just to give us the image of scripture and to make this really clear. Now, the first thing we need to understand when we talk about Jesus coming is there are two different events and there's two groups of people. So let me show you what I mean. Here is event number one. Jesus takes his church or his bride, just as he promised. So let's look at John 14, 1 to 3 again. Um, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Okay, this is Jesus taking his people, his bride, to come and be with him. So that where he is, we may be also. Then we have 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. This event is referring to us being gathered together to him, where he is. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Um, And look, that's what I love about the scripture. If it wasn't simple, I wouldn't understand it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 to 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's like one of my favorite verses lines right there, (laughs) to always be with him. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, so that's pretty obvious. Um, He's coming for us. We're caught up to meet him in the clouds, and we're going to be where he is. Then we have event number two, and this is Jesus comes back to reign on earth. 
And the more I see different news articles, the more I say amen to this. Wouldn't it be awesome to have a completely righteous government? A government where there is no corruption, there's no power for anyone to corrupt because he is incorruptible. Wow, this is going to be amazing. Jesus comes back to reign on earth. Look at this event in Scripture, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow, that's my Jesus. Now, I'm going to be on one of them horses up there behind him. I'd like to be on the front row seat and go, that's my king. Whoa, go Jesus. When you keep reading, for the sake of time, I didn't put any more up there, but when you keep reading there in Revelation 19, it says that all the armies of the earth gather to fight against Jesus. And to me, that is one of the most ironic verses in Scripture. Um, Someone's coming on a white horse in the air and you think you're going to take them down? Um, I just can't fathom that. (laughs) Someone who can ride a horse in the air? I I know I'm done for. (laughs) We don't have that kind of power. Um, But anyway, it does say they gather to fight him. This... um, coming, the second coming of Christ physically on the earth, occurs at the end of a period of time known as the wrath of God or the tribulation period. When he comes again, he defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet and he sets up his physical kingdom here on earth. But this was prophesied even long before the book of Revelation. In Zechariah, he describes a very similar uh, event. Zechariah 14, and I'm reading verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 9. Again, for the sake of time, I'm just sort of picking out some highlights. But feel free to go back and read the whole chapter. It's really, really good. Zechariah 14, I'll start with verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. 
And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. You see that picture he had envisioned this prophecy a long time ago that when he comes, this second event, he will come with the saints. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Amen to that. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. Now, um, I want to go back here to where it talks about the Mount of Olives. Um, when I was in Israel and I was standing on the Mount of Olives and you, it, it literally overlooks Jerusalem and it's just one valley between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. It's really close. And uh, we're standing there and we're listening to uh, Pastor um, Mondo at, and he says, now if you just look back out over this way and we look out over and far in the distance you can see the Dead Sea and between the Mount of Olives and the Dead Sea, there is a lot of desert. And he begins to explain this passage when Jesus comes back and he literally sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. So great is the power that he contains. It says that the mountain will be split in two. Now, that's amazing. And we were trying to envision what what this is going to look like. And then if you keep reading there in Zechariah, he talks about this living water that will flow from Jerusalem straight through the new channel through the Mount of Olives and it will go all the way to the Dead Sea and it will restore that sea to life. And so standing there, it's absolutely incredible to see with your own eyes what is going to be able to happen one day when Jesus returns. And will be king over all the earth. Um, so wonderful. All right. So how do we know they are two different ones? Because one is describing Jesus physically returning to the earth to set up his kingdom. The other one Jesus is talking about, I've built a room on the Father's house and you're going to come and be with me where I am. So where is Jesus now? Does anyone know where he is? The scripture says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So if we're going to be taken to where Jesus is, we need to be taken to where the Father is in heaven. And then it says we come back with him, all his saints come back when he sets up his kingdom here on earth and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So two different events. And look, there's even more um, to this, but this is really just the very tip of the iceberg that we're going to have time to cover off today. And so what I want to do now is just show you that period in Revelation known as the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation period where there's um, a time of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. I just want to show you how the church is not destined for the wrath of God. Um, we experience salvation through Christ. And, and there's so many scriptures, and I'm only giving you a few here today. Um, 
But I encourage you to go home and search this out for yourself. It's one of the most amazing things um, to search out for yourself. But here we go. We're going to go through some of these scriptures. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10. Paul is speaking. Oops. Sorry. How about that one? For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here's another one, John 3:36. Jesus is saying, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We can see two different ones. Previous passage told us Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. This slide says anyone who does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. Romans 5, 8 to 10. But God, boy, I love those two words. You know they change everything, right? But God (laughs) demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here's another one. All these beautiful promises. All right. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, not the sons and daughters of God. Another one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 to 10. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So that's just some of them. There are so many more. Like I said, encourage you to have a look at it. Why is this important? Listen, the reason I really felt to put some time into this today for us is because this is one of the the subtleties of the enemy. Do you know the scripture tells us that he accuses the brethren before God day and night? He is known as the accuser of the brethren. And what he wants to do is accuse you all the time. You're not good enough. You're going to have to go through the tribulation. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to do all these things. You're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. 
But here is the assurance of our salvation. If our salvation was based on our ability, we would already be in trouble. We cannot save ourselves. We have to have Christ as our redeemer. And so it's important that we understand this, just like we understand the assurance of our salvation. We can be assured of our, of our salvation through Christ. <laughs> Get the words out. We can be assured that he is coming back for us just as he promised. And it's not based on your goodness or your ability to be perfect. It's based on your ability to trust his perfection for you. All right, I just want to quickly finish up with some Old Testament parallels. Um, and maybe another time I'll be able to take you further through these. But there are so many prophetic pictures of Christ's return for his church um, before the wrath of God and the seven-year tribulation. It's all throughout the Old Testament. We see, you know, just like um, there are so many things in the Old Testament that were done as a type of what would be fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. And this is the same. It's like a prophetic picture that God used again and again and again throughout history to show us um, of this beautiful picture of Christ returning for his church. So I want us to take a look at the first one, Enoch. Okay, so those who are familiar with this story, um, we don't know a lot about Enoch. We know that when he was 300, he um, had a son. And so, you know, I, uh, I guess he wasn't in a hurry to get married because they were living to 900 years of age back then. So 300, maybe still a spring chicken. Um, he gets married and he has his first son. The Bible does tell us that Enoch walked with God. So Enoch, um, Enoch is known as a prophet in, in fact, he gave a prophecy by what he named his son Methuselah. Uh, Methuselah means in the year that I die, destruction comes. So there was a prophecy in the name of his son. But then it says 65 years later, when he was 365, Enoch was not because God took him. <clears throat> Enoch was the first person taken up to heaven who did not see death, a type and shadow of the church who would, those who were alive and remain, would one day be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Interestingly, Enoch was taken up to heaven before the flood of Noah, before judgment came upon the world. And the year that Methuselah died, when you look at the chronological order of the ages in Scripture, we see the very year that Methuselah died, the flood came upon the earth. So Enoch's prophecy came to pass. But Enoch himself was not there to see it. He was already in heaven. Here's another one. <clears throat> Lot. Lot was taken out and sent to a higher place before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I find it interesting, the angel said to him, go to the mountains, go high. He was taken out and put in a higher place 
before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses, this one is amazing. If you've got time, go and study this uh, passage about Moses. I really encourage you to do this. Um, When he's brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, so out of the world, they've been baptised through the Red Sea, and now they are appearing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and, and they're given an instruction. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Cleanse yourself. Be prepared because you are going to meet with God in three days. Two days preparation and on the third day he was going to come. And uh, so Moses was called up on the third day early in the morning, it says, of the third day. And that just reminds me of Jesus' resurrection. It says early on the morning of the third day. Jesus was resurrected. Well, here we have early in the morning on the third day, Moses hears the sound of a trumpet. He hears the voice saying to him, come up here into the cloud. And he ascends up into the cloud to meet the Lord. And uh, that, again, is another type and shadow of the church being called up to meet the Lord in the clouds. We have Joseph. This is a great analogy. Joseph was exalted to the palace before the seven years of famine, which are a shadow of the seven-year tribulation. So Joseph sits in a palace with the king while there is famine raging in the land. He is exalted. Here's another type and shadow. Daniel. Daniel was elevated to a higher position with the king before the seven times hotter fiery furnace. That's why you don't see him there. There's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but you do not see Daniel in that story. He'd already been elevated with the king. Again, a picture of the church being taken up before the seven-year tribulation. So that's just a few of the Old Testament types and shadows. There are so many more all throughout the scriptures. Again, like I said, tip of the iceberg this morning. Here's what I know for certain. Jesus gave us a promise. I will come again and take you to myself, receive you to myself. And this I know with every fiber of my being that he's coming for me. And I am going to watch and be found watching when he comes. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet with me this morning? I just want to give an opportunity for those who are here, for those who are watching online. Um, If you haven't made Jesus your Lord and Saviour, I was talking about two different events today. One where Jesus comes for his church and the second one when Jesus comes with his church to set up his kingdom. Let me tell you, you want to be part of event number one. You don't want to be down here part of event number two. Because when Jesus comes back physically to the earth, he's not coming as the saviour of the world. He's coming as the judge, the righteous judge, the scripture says. 
If you don't want to meet Jesus as your judge, if you want him to be your saviour, then you have to make that choice now, before eternity. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Anyone who's lost any member of their family can, can testify to that. We're not guaranteed it tomorrow. But you do have this moment. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. So I want to give you an opportunity today to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord. It's as simple as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner, that you have broken God's commands. B is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he paid the price for you. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And C is confess, confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's how simple it is. Why don't you close your eyes and bow your heads with me this morning. If you're in this room, you say, Nita, I want to receive Jesus as my saviour. I just want you to raise your hand and acknowledge that. Count me in. I want to receive this Jesus as my Lord and saviour. If you're watching online, this message is for you as well. If you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and saviour, you can just raise your hand at home. Say, hey, that's me. I'm listening. I'm ready. And I would like to pray for you. I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. It's just a simple prayer. I want you to pray it from your heart. And the scripture says, if you pray this from your heart and you believe, you will be saved. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I need a saviour. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I believe he died and rose again. Make me part of your family. I will follow you for the rest of my life. I believe in Jesus. Amen and amen. That's how simple it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Hey, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you, Lord, that this week we can be about our Father's business watching and waiting and anticipating that our bridegroom is going to come back for us one day and we know it's going to be one day soon. So, Lord, I pray that you would find us watching and eagerly anticipating your return. Lord, we thank you for your promise you will never break your word. You said you would come back for us. So, Lord, we take you at your word. We expect you. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you have in store for us this week. Lord, give us opportunities to share our faith with people. Give us opportunities, Lord, to pray for the sick, to see them recover in Jesus' name. Give us opportunities to step out in boldness, Lord, and, and bring the bread of life to this hungry world in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you.